What do you think would happen if all the electricity in a transformer were released into a 60-watt light bulb? It's obvious what would happen. The light bulb would explode because it wouldn't be able to handle all the electrical power. Well, that's the way it is sometimes when we try to understand God's ways and why God does what He does and why God doesn't do what He doesn't do. Our finite minds just aren't able to handle it. Our finite understanding is not able to comprehend it. Of course, this shouldn't surprise us. In Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Because of that, we shouldn't always expect to understand why God does what He does. Sometimes God explains. Most of the times, He chooses not to explain. But the message that continually comes through the pages of His Word is that we should trust Him, period. Period. We can and should trust Him regardless. There is a book of Hebrew Scripture that centers around questions from a prophet who wondered why God was doing what He was doing and why God wasn't doing what the prophet thought God should be doing. It is the book of Habakkuk, and that is the book we want to consider in this message. So let's turn there together. Turn with me in your Bible to the book of Habakkuk, and you might have to blow the dust off because it's probably been a while since you've been there. I doubt very few of you had your devotions there yesterday morning or this past week, but it's a great book of Hebrew Scripture, a great book of the Bible. The prophet Habakkuk had the unenviable responsibility of prophesying to the southern kingdom of Judah just before King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon first invaded Judah in, five, or in 605 B.C. Habakkuk was written around 607 B.C. For years, different prophets had been warning the kingdom of Judah that God's judgment was coming if they would not repent. One of the ways the prophets warned was by pointing to the northern kingdom of Israel, which had already experienced the judgment of God. In 722 B.C., after many years of warning, the northern kingdom of Israel experienced the judgment of God in the form of the wicked and cruel Assyrian army, which decimated the country and took the people away into captivity. Now the southern kingdom of Judah faced the same thing Although this time it would be the wicked and cruel Chaldean or Babylonian army, not the Assyrian army. The Chaldeans, the Babylonians, would be, the God, be, be God's rod of chastening. But before God revealed that fact to Habakkuk, there were other issues that were plaguing and tormenting the prophet. He looked around his beloved homeland and he could see the violence the injustice, the unrighteousness, the unfaithfulness. That raised some perplexing questions in his mind. He wondered why God allowed the wicked to prosper in the midst of God's people. 
He wondered why the righteous were beaten down and why they weren't prospering. He wondered why God seemed to be inactive. He wondered why God seemed to be indifferent to all of this. Have you ever wondered about those kinds of things? Sure you have. And so have I. Why does God allow the wicked to prosper? Why does it seem that God allows the wicked to get away with their wickedness? Why does God allow His people to struggle so much and flounder so much? Why does God seem to be inactive at times? Why does God seem to be indifferent to these circumstances? Those are the issues Habakkuk was struggling with as he wrote this book. But the answer he got from the Lord shocked him even more than what he was observing in his land. God assured Habakkuk that he was working. Yes, God was working. God was preparing the Chaldeans or Babylonians to descend upon Judah as God's instrument of judgment. Habakkuk was dumbfounded. He was stunned. He was astounded at that announcement. Why would God use a people even more wicked than Judah to be God's instrument of chastening to Judah? That's what Habakkuk couldn't understand. So God patiently instructed his prophet until Habakkuk was able to trust completely and without reservation in the God whose ways are beyond our ways. That's what this book is all about. It's interesting to note that the name Habakkuk means one who embraces or one who clings. That's a fitting title for this book and for this man because by the end, Habakkuk realizes that there are many times in life when all we can do is to cling firmly to the Lord regardless of what happens and regardless of whether we understand it or not and regardless of whether we can see what the Lord is doing. By the way, have you learned that lesson? It's one we need to learn very early in life because there are times, frankly, when we don't understand. There are times when we cannot figure out what God is doing. Or there are times when we can't figure out if God is doing anything. But we don't have to understand. We shouldn't expect to always understand. But we should, as the title of this book means or indicates, we should always cling to the Lord. We should always embrace Him and trust that He knows what He is doing. He is righteous. He never makes mistakes. He can and should be trusted regardless. So with that thought ringing in our ears, let's begin to work our way through this book to learn its timeless message. Notice how it, happened, how it unfolds in chapter 1, verse 1. The burden or the oracle, the prophecy which the prophet Habakkuk saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you, violence, and you will not save. You see what Habakkuk was struggling with as he wrote those words. He could see the, the violence in his beloved homeland. He could see the iniquity in his homeland. But it seemed like God was oblivious to what was going on. It seemed like God was unaware. It seemed like God didn't care. Verse 3 
Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore perverse judgment proceeds. This is the age-old question. This is the question that weaves its way through many of the Psalms. Why do the wicked seem to prosper? And why do the righteous seem to suffer? So you can relate to Habakkuk's struggle. The psalmist certainly could. Many of the psalmists. As I said, that's a theme that weaves its way through many psalms. So Habakkuk raises this question. Then comes God's reply. Look among the nations. Verse 5. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe though it were told you. For indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. In other words, they they don't regard anyone else. They do whatever they want to do. It all comes from themselves. They were a law to themselves. Verse 8, their horses are also swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. We know from history that when Nebuchadnezzar invaded Judah in 605 B.C., just shortly after Habakkuk wrote this book, he took back with him about 10,000 captives from Judah. And that was just the first invasion. There would be three in all over a 19-year period. So you can see why God said they, they gather captives like the sand. Every nation they conquered, every people they conquered, they just took captives in abundance. Verse 10, they scoff at kings, and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold, for they heap up earth mounds and seize it. This was a common form of warfare in the Middle East, where cities and strongholds were often built on top of hills or mounds and surrounded by walls and gates. Attacking armies would build up mounds so they could assail the city or get beyond the walls of the city to the inside. And the Babylonian army was really good at this tactic. Really good at it. So that meant that the fortified cities of Judah, including Jerusalem, would not be safe when the Babylonians came calling. Verse 11, Then his mind changes And he transgresses, he commits offense, ascribing his power to his God. What that is saying is that the Babylonians considered their might to be their master. They were a mighty nation. In fact, Babylon was the first true world empire. There have been four worldwide empires in the history of mankind. Only four. First was the Babylonian Empire which was followed by the Medo-Persian Empire, which was followed by the Grecian Empire, which was followed by the Roman Empire. So the Babylonian, uh, the Babylonian Empire was first 
under the leadership of King Nebuchadnezzar, and as you might expect, he let it go to his head. He not only believed might was right, he also believed might was divine. Whenever he won military campaigns, he attributed it to his god, Marduk. We see this in the book of Daniel, chapter 1, when Nebuchadnezzar returned from ravaging the temple in Jerusalem. He took the vessels from the temple of God and placed them in the house of his god, Marduk, as a way of thanking Marduk and exalting Marduk by implying that Yahweh is subject to Marduk. That's the kind of thing that verse 11 is referring to. So you can see that the Babylonians were powerful. They were arrogant. They were cruel. And they were wicked. That raised another question in Habakkuk's Habakkuk's mind. Why would God use the wicked Babylonians to punish the people of Judah? Why would God let them win? Knowing that they would attribute the victory to their god Marduk, which would be a way of saying that Yahweh is inferior to Marduk. Why would God let his reputation be treated that way? Why would God let his testimony be defamed in that way? Why? That's what Habakkuk was struggling with. Verse 12, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have marked them for correction. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Do you see Habakkuk's struggle coming through in these verses? He is saying, Lord, why do you allow someone who is wicked to devour one more righteous than he? Habakkuk couldn't understand this. It didn't make sense to him. He knew what the Babylonians would do if God allowed them to come marching through the the land. He knew they would use any and every means to capture the people of Judah. Verse 14, Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? They take up all of them with a hook. They catch them in their net and gather them in their dragnet. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. That's exactly what was going to happen. The Babylonians were going to capture the people of Judah like fish in a dragnet. And then the Babylonians would rejoice and give thanks to their false god. Habakkuk couldn't understand why God would allow that to happen. God, why would you allow a false god to be exalted like that? Over you, over your name, over your glory. Why? Makes no sense. Verse 16, Therefore they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet, because by them their share is sumptuous and their food plentiful. Shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? So Habakkuk is a man in turmoil. He is baffled and he is perplexed. So he waits for an answer from his God. That's what the first verse of chapter 2 is is saying. I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. Notice that wording. Habakkuk knew. You see, Habakkuk knew that God wasn't making a mistake. He knew it intellectually, 
but he couldn't accept it emotionally. That's why he says at the end of this verse that he knows he will be reproved or corrected. He knows he has no right to question the way God does things, and he knows that if God chooses to answer him, God will be right. But he's confused. Have you ever been where Habakkuk was at in his struggle? I've been there. You know that God hasn't lost control, and you know that God doesn't make mistakes, and you know that God does what is right. You know all of that intellectually. You can assent to that, but you can't, you just can't seem to accept it emotionally. That's where Habakkuk was at in his struggle. Because he was wrestling and inquiring respectfully, God, in his graciousness, didn't rebuke him. God answered him. Verse 2 Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision. And make it plain on tablets, that he may run who reads it. In other words, Habakkuk, write the answer down. I'm going to give you the answer. Write it down so all the people can read it and know they need to run. Verse 3, For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak, and it will not lie, though it tarries. Wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. In other words, this is going to come about in my perfect timing, Habakkuk. That's what God is saying. It's going to happen. Verse 4, Behold, the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. The first part of this verse, Behold, the proud, his soul is not upright in him, is a reference to the Babylonians or the Chaldeans. God was saying that he knows that the Babylonians are a proud people and an unrighteous people. God was aware of that. He assured Habakkuk that he was aware of that. So what should Habakkuk, as a righteous man, do? He should trust that God knows what he's doing. And that's the last phrase in verse 4, but the just shall live by his faith. Beloved, we won't always see what God is doing. We won't always understand what God is doing. In fact, it may be more accurate to say we will seldom understand what God is doing. But we have to trust that God knows what he is doing. He has matchless wisdom, matchless goodness, and matchless power. So even when we can't see Even when we can't understand God's ways, we have to believe that God knows what he is doing. We have to live by faith, not by sight, as the end of this verse says. By the way, this is the theme verse of the book. This is it. The just shall live by his faith. That is what God was calling Habakkuk to do, and that is what God calls us to do. He asks us to trust him, especially when we can't understand his ways and when we can't figure out why he is doing what he is doing. On this occasion, God gave somewhat of an explanation of what he was doing. Not full, probably didn't answer all of Habakkuk's questions by any means. But he assured Habakkuk that he was aware of the spiritual and moral condition of everyone involved. God knew that the Babylonians were wicked. And he assured Habakkuk that someday their punishment would come. 
But the people of Judah were guilty of some of the same kinds of things. So that's why the Lord was going to use the Babylonians as a rod of chastening first. And then the judgment of the Babylonians would come. So in verses 5 through 20, God describes the wickedness of the Babylonians and their certain judgment to assure Habakkuk that he knew the whole picture. He understood the whole situation. Verse 5 Indeed, because he transgresses by wine, he is a proud man. And he does not stay at home because he enlarges his desire as hell, or depending on your translation here, Sheol, the grave. He enlarges his, his territory, the idea is. And he is like death and cannot be satisfied. He gathers to himself all nations and heaps up for himself all peoples. The he in this verse is a collective he. It's a reference to the Babylonians as a whole. History tells us that, for one thing, as a society, they were very addicted to wine, and they were also greedy to take over the world, exactly as God describes it, just like he describes. But God says they will not go unpunished. In verses 6 through 20, Habakkuk records a series of five woes of judgment. Notice verse 6. Will not all these take up a proverb against him and a totting riddle against him and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his. How long? And to him who holds himself with many pledges. Will not your creditors rise up suddenly? Will they not awaken who oppress you? And you will become their booty because you have plundered many nations all the remnant of the people shall plunder you because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and of all who dwell in it. Woe to him who covets evil gain for his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of disaster. You give shameful counsel to your house, cutting off many peoples and sin against your soul. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the timbers will answer it. Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed, who establishes a city by iniquity. Behold, it is, uh, is it not of the Lord of hosts that the peoples labor to feed the fire and nations wear themselves in vain? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Pause there. That's an, that's an amazing verse of prophecy stuck right in the middle of this section on judgment against Babylon. How does this fit? doesn't seem to fit at first glance. Remember, this section is about the certainty of God's judgment on Babylon. God is assuring Habakkuk they will not go unpunished. He was assuring Habakkuk that he would intervene and stop their drunkenness, stop their aggression, stop their greed, stop their violence, stop their exploitation, stop their immorality, and stop their idolatry. This verse is a reference to the millennial kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this very promise, almost word for word, is stated five times in Hebrew Scripture. It's in Numbers 14, 21, Psalm 72, 19, Isaiah 6, 3, Isaiah 11, 9, and right here in Habakkuk. It's a promise from God that one day, one day, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters 
cover the sea. What a day that will be. God used the example of the Babylonians to demonstrate what He is going to do one day with the whole world. That's how this fits. God knows what is going on today. Sometimes we think He isn't aware. Sometimes we think He doesn't care, but He does. And one day He will intervene on planet Earth, in the realm of planet Earth, just like He did with the Babylonians. He is very much aware of everything that goes on in this world. And that's how this verse fits in. God was going to judge the Babylonians and rid them of all of those things. And one day God will judge this world and rid the entire world of those things. Verse 15, Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk, that you may look on his nakedness. You are filled with shame instead of glory. You also drink and be exposed as uncircumcised. The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you, and utter shame will be on your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will cover you, and the plunder of beasts which made them afraid because of, man, of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and of all who dwell in it. What profit is the image that its maker should carve it, the molded image, a teacher of lies, that the maker of its mold should trust in it to make mute idols? Woe to him who says to wood, awake, to silent stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet in it there is no breath at all. What an appropriate description of the Babylonians. They trusted in their idolatrous, false gods of wood and stone and refused to acknowledge the true God of heaven. After all, they were the world conquerors. They were giving thanks to their God, the one they thought was providing them all of these victories. Verse 20 says, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. That's the contrast. There it is. All other gods are dumb or mute, man-carved idols, but the true God is the Lord of heaven. The proper response to him is a humble silence as we stand in awe of him. When Habakkuk got his eyes off his circumstances and placed them on his God, his response was praise. And that's what chapter 3 of this book is all about. This third chapter is one of the greatest psalms in all the Old Testament. I know that we tend to think that all the psalms are in the book of Psalms, the 150 chapters, but there are other psalms, songs, scattered throughout Hebrew Scripture. This is clearly one of the greatest psalms in Hebrew Scripture. <clears throat> Notice verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. In other words, let me paraphrase what Habakkuk is saying here. He's saying, Lord, you have said that you are going to bring the Babylonians to our country as your rod of judgment. I understand that now. I don't completely fathom it. I can't grasp it. But I understand that that's what you say is going to happen. 
So Lord, do what you have said you are going to do. Carry out your judgment. But here, notice what he says. But please be merciful. Carry out your judgment, but please be merciful. I don't understand completely, but I trust that your ways are best. That's what Habakkuk was saying in the opening two verses of this psalm. Habakkuk had seen a glimpse, just a glimpse, of the person and power and plan of God. So he, des- he tries to describe it in the following verses. Notice how he labors to try to describe this. He says, verse 3, God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. That's either a musical notation or a statement that means just pause and think about that. Consider that. The Holy One came from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light. He had rays flashing from His hand, and there His power was hidden. Before Him went pestilence, and fever followed at His feet. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and startled the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills bowed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian trembled. O Lord, were you displeased with the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made quite ready. Oaths were sworn over your arrows. Selah. You divided the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered its voice and lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. As the light of your arrows they went at the shining of your glittering spear. You marched through the land in indignation. You trampled the nations in anger. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for salvation with your anointed. You struck the head from the house of the wicked by laying bare from foundation to neck, Selah. You thrust through with his own arrows the head of his villages. They came out like a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was like feasting on the poor in secret. You walked through the sea with your horses, through the heap of great waters. That was obviously a vision like Ezekiel's vision, Isaiah's vision. It's difficult for someone who has seen a vision of the Lord to even know how to put it into words. He uses descriptive language, but it's not always clear to the reader what he saw, because maybe it's not even completely clear to the one who observed. How did Habakkuk respond to this vision of the Lord that he, that he tried to capture in words. How did he respond? He responded very similar to the way Isaiah did when Isaiah saw his vision of the Lord. Remember that from Isaiah 6? Isaiah was overwhelmed, and he cried out, Woe is me! Judgment is upon me! I am ruined! I am undone! I'm falling apart! Job's response was similar. He said in Job 42, 5 and 6, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. 
Therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. That's the way Habakkuk responded. Verse 16, When I heard, my body trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. Habakkuk was overwhelmed. Just like Isaiah was overwhelmed, just like Job was overwhelmed. I'll tell you what, seeing a vision of God won't do anything for your self-esteem. It doesn't help it at all. It's just overwhelming. It's debilitating. But in the midst of this condition, interestingly, his trust and his hope were renewed. He affirmed the fact that he was going to rest and wait patiently for the day of calamity. That's what he says, that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. He affirmed the fact he was going to rest and wait patiently for the day of calamity that was coming on the nation of Judah. He still didn't completely understand it. It didn't make sense to him. He couldn't comprehend it. Why would God do it this way? Why would God do this to his people? Why would God allow his reputation to be affected or tampered with in that way? Why? He didn't understand, but he says in this verse, I'm going to rest. I'm going to trust. At the beginning of the book, Habakkuk was in turmoil. He was agitated. He was anxious. But here at the end of the book, he is trusting in his omniscient, omnipotent, sovereign God. Beloved, that's a lot better condition to be in, is it not? Way better condition. It's a lot more pleasant to be resting in the Lord than it is to be agitated and anxious. Habakkuk started out questioning, and he ended up praising he had learned the lesson God wanted him to learn. So he closes his book with a tremendous affirmation of faith and trust in God. These are great words, some of the greatest in all of Scripture, especially when you put them in their context, historical context and the context of this book. The, the, the verses are quoted often, and I'm not suggesting they're quoted out of context, but maybe sometimes they're just quoted without an appreciation for context. And here are the verses. Verse 17. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, though the labor of the olive may fall or fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. What is Habakkuk? talking about here. He knew that when the Babylonians were done ravaging his land, the land would be stripped. It would be stripped bare. The flock would be cut off from the fold. There would be no herd in the stalls. Yet Habakkuk says he would rejoice in the Lord. Habakkuk would trust that God knows what he is doing and that his ways are right even though we don't understand them. Habakkuk knew that God was his salvation in life and in death. 
And that gave him strength. Strength to live life. Verse 19, the Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. And he will make me walk on my high hills. And then this interesting note. To let us know that he wrote this third chapter as a song to be sung. He gives this little musical notation to the chief musician with my stringed instruments. But isn't this a great verse? Look at this verse. The Lord God, literally in Hebrew, Yahweh Adonai. Yahweh Adonai is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. And he will make me walk on my high hills. The last phrase, as I just mentioned, the last phrase of this verse tells us that Habakkuk wrote these final words of praise to be sung. Not just read, to be sung. There's something unique or special about singing our praises to God. There's something special or unique about singing our trust in God. And that's what Habakkuk wanted people who heard his story to do. Everyone who heard his story, he wanted them to sing this song of praise. So what does the Lord want us to learn from this little book? At least three things, and they're really interrelated. Number one, here it is, God hasn't lost control. When we look at all the wickedness around us, it's easy to wonder why God doesn't do something about it. Especially when, as Habakkuk did, we call out to him. We pray to him. Why doesn't he do anything about it? The world of sin seems to be spinning out of control. God seems to have lost control, but he hasn't. God is still sovereign. He's still on the throne. God has not lost control. That's number one. Number two, God will punish sin someday. God doesn't work on our time schedule, but that doesn't mean that he will allow sin and wickedness to go unpunished. He is a righteous God, and he will punish sin someday. So if you are one who seeks to walk with God and you love God and you're disturbed and troubled by wickedness, take comfort in the fact that God will punish sin someday. He won't let it slide. And maybe I should add this. If you are here and you're one who is, who is living sin, dabbling in sin, playing with sin, understand something. You won't get away with it. Galatians 6, 7, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. What you sow, you reap. And it's, it's appropriate that Paul used that analogy because he uses a sowing, reaping analogy to remind us of the fact that it may be a while before it all comes out. You know, you can sow something in the ground and you think that it's covered, it's gone, and then it may be a long time later and all of a sudden it starts coming up. Don't be deceived, Galatians 6, 7. God is not mocked. What you sow, you reap. So if you're one who is enjoying the pleasures of sin now, and thinking you're going to get away with it? You won't. You won't. As Moses said to the people of Israel, be sure your sin will find you out. You can't hide it. You can't cover it. You can't get away with it. God will punish sin someday. That's lesson number two. Lesson number three, and this is the, the big one, the theme of the book, the just 
shall live by faith. It is not the just shall live by sight. We don't see it. The just shall live by faith. Beloved, I'll say it again. We won't always see what God is doing. We won't always understand what God is doing. Maybe more accurately, we will seldom understand what God is doing. But we have to trust that God knows what he is doing. He has matchless wisdom, matchless goodness, and matchless power. So even when we can't see, even when we don't understand God's ways, we have to believe that God knows what he is doing. We have to live by faith, not by sight. The just shall live by faith. That is such an important statement that not only is it stated here in Habakkuk, it's repeated three times in the New Testament. Romans, Galatians, Hebrews. All record this statement. The just shall live by faith. That's the message of Habakkuk. Let's bow together in closing. Father, we need, we really need to hear the message of the book of Habakkuk. We think of Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. We walk by faith, not by sight. Habakkuk says the same thing in just a different way. The just shall live by faith. Paul reiterated that in Romans, Galatians. The writer of Hebrews said the same thing. It's a message, obviously, that you want us to understand. Not only in a salvation sense that, 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 that we are righteous by faith, but that we are to live. The righteous shall live by faith. We are made righteous by faith, and we, we are to live righteously by faith. Teach us that lesson. Oh, how we can relate to Habakkuk, what he struggled with, what he wrestled with, his confusion, his perplexity of mind and thought. I'm sure that so many in this room, if time would allow, if we were just to stop now and allow for people to step forward and give testimony, so many could say that they've walked through things in life that they just simply did not understand. It made no sense to them. They couldn't understand why you were doing what you were doing or not doing what it appeared that you were not doing. We've all been there to one degree or another, and surely, should the Lord Jesus tarry, we will go through more times like that. May your Spirit drive deep into our hearts the powerful message of this little book, that you are to be trusted, period. You have not lost control. You will punish sin someday, and the just shall live by faith. May we live our lives that way until Jesus comes, in whose name we pray. Amen.